Mike, turn your games down. Spooky comic episode of Games My Mom Found. I am Mike Hubbard, and who's had women kidnapping their babies? That would be the one, the only, the muse to the stars, Kenneth Sanity. I just feel like the right way to start this fucked up episode. So. <laughs> I was like, hmm, how, can, how should I start this? So, I mean, this isn't really that spooky, but because it is Spooktober, and because I, I make my own rules, uh, we, we're putting this, this is going to be part of Spooktober, because I just said fuck it. Wanted to throw it out there. Uh, we are covering the Sandman, a dream country. Uh, DC Comics came out in 1990, essentially volume three. We did cover the first two volumes of. So if you want to go go look in our catalog, they're in there somewhere in our giant catalog. So and this is a volume that isn't this is essentially kind of like little short stories. I'm assuming before you get into the next big set, which is Season of Mist, which I've never I've never read any of this is all my first time reading all these. Yeah, and this is this is fantastic. You all might remember that we covered uh, the previous volume, The Doll's House, last Spooktober. Yes. <laughs> so, and whoo, boy, that was a hell of a fun time. This one, not as gnarly as the last one. And like Mike said, there's no overarching storyline. The narrative is split up. There's... There's even a story where Dream doesn't even make an appearance. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, I know what you're talking about. But it serves the purpose of the actual, the feeling to understand what's going on. It it's fleshing out characters. Yeah, and it, it the, I mean, the, the, also the main reason we're doing is because the show came out recently, and I watched the show, and I'm like, fuck it, I need to read more Sandman. So that's also why yeah. I love the show. And, you know, listen, listen to Ken Sanity. Y'all know me. Y'all know that I have exceptional taste. Everyone needs to read more Sandman. Everyone. How about more Damian Wayne books? How about those? Fuck off. Damian Wayne's a punk. <laughs> and we did Sandman, Dollhouse, Comic 31, and San- Sandman, Preludes and Nocturnes, Comic 4. So if you want to get caught up, listen to those two, then come back to this one. And then we're going to dig into Dream Country. So the first issue... So I had no expectation, no nothing coming into this. I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to read some Sandman and, and see what happens. And this, so issue 17, the first, uh, Cal- how do you pronounce that? Calliope? Calliope? Calliope. Calliope. This is a weird issue, too. Like, this is probably the creepier issue, I feel, of the set. I would agree. It's, you're getting a lot of the dark magic that you got in the first volume with John D. <laughs> And you're also just getting a lot of people being absolute shits. That's for sure. And I don't, I don't like it, but it's a good story, but I don't like it. <laughs> no, like I was just very confused because it starts off with some random guy talking to some other guy and he got, he wanted a bezoar, which I recognize the word. And then he says that this one was, this is a trickle bezoar. It was made of hair. I cut it out of a young woman's stomach this afternoon. And I'm like. All right. I'm thinking that he murdered her, but I think he was a coroner or something. Coroner, doctor, something. Okay. Because at first I thought, I'm like, oh, here we go again. It's just like uh, Dollhouse. We have serial killers again. Nope. No serial conventions here, folks. (laughs) (laughs) No, we meet right off the bat. We meet Richard Madoc. And Richard Madoc is the one bargaining for the Bezor. And... You know, he just he's trying to get it for reasons that are unsure of. And then we find out he's an author. He wrote one book, <laughs> one book, one amazing, exceptional, 
book. And oh, he gets else? a phone call. <laughs> he gets a phone call while his doctor friend is there. And it's his agent asking for the next book because it's nine months overdue and you're almost in breach of contract. Oh, very real thing. I'm so, sure. <laughs> this is, this is a desperate man. He hasn't written a word of the new novel and he decides to throw his gross hairball into a bag, <laughs> go take a walk. Is it, was it just me or when I, you know, like there, I think it's, yeah, a little bit later he talks about how he can't write words just won't come. And all I could think of was from the shining. Yeah. <laughs> Jack is a dull boy. If he only works or something like that, however it goes. All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. <laughs> like, look at the novel I wrote of all the same sentence over and over and over again. That's what it reminded me of. But so, yeah, you're right. He, he takes the thing in a bag. He goes to some weird old, old man's house who wanted, who was, I think, a writer also? Yes. Yes, he goes to see Erasmus Fry. Now, Erasmus Fry is not a character that's been introduced in the book before. He's just, he's an author. He looks rather eccentric. Yeah, he does. And he, he's not going to waste his good sherry on a little shit like Richard Maydock. <laughs> yeah, he trades him. What does he want the Bezor for? I can't remember. Well, from the words of Erasmus Fry's mouth, let me tell you about Bezor's word comes from the Persian Padzar. It means counterpoison, antidote, mainly found in the stomachs of goats and gazelles. Once believed to possess mystic powers, they can remedy poison, make the sick well. Edward IV survived the effects of a poison wound due solely to a Bezor in his possession. Okay. So on and so forth. I, I do so, like that this that Sandman mixes so much of like mythology or like mysticism into their into the book. Yeah, and it goes even further than that. The name Erasmus itself comes from Desiderius Erasmus um, Erasmus Rhododamus, who was a Dutch philosopher and Catholic theologian. Oh, okay. Yeah, one of the greatest scholars in the Northern Renaissance. But this guy, not so much. <laughs> no, I mean he's like a psychopath. I mean he talks about how he was a writer and that he was able to do this. Because he found a muse so many years ago, and that that's what helped him. That's what helped him become who he is. And I guess the, the story wasn't that he, so he, he, he leads him down. He talks about all the glory he's got, the poems and the novels and the plays that he's wrote. And he talks about how he had kidnapped this woman when he was 27 years old, who was bathing in the spring. And I caught her and bound her with Molly, sorcerer's garlic, as it's sometimes called, and with certain rituals. And he opens his door, and then you find this muse, just this naked woman locked in a closet. That's like, you can see her ribcage and everything, so he's like, so he's, you know, he's starving her and not, you know, a piece of shit you find out real fast. So, And we gotta talk about this picture, because the art style in this show is amazing, or in this comic here is amazing. Mm -hmm. You can tell that Calliope is just bound nude in this closet, nothing but hip bones and sharp angles. But everything here is very high contrast, and it just, it's horrifying to look at. Like, you can see ribs protruding, bags under the eyes. This is not a woman who is doing well. No, and it's, I mean, and it gets even more fucked up pretty quickly when you realize how they use oh, the yeah. muse. Because I mean, at first, I thought maybe it was an idea that having the muse near you would affect you. Yeah, like no, you have no. it locked in your house, so therefore you are able to absorb 
her powers and you're able to think more and ideas come to you. And then you find out really quick that he has to rape her in order to get his ideas. <sighs> I know it, it's, it's really, it was, it's a little, it's a little fucked up. Like that shouldn't say a little, but it's fucked up. And it, it hit me. I'm like, but it really makes you hate both these characters. I mean, the one thing is like when he, when he brings her back, when the, the new guy that took her, that M- made up Madoc, when he takes her home, like he talks, I mean, you had the lines here where he talks about how she's not even human, he told himself. She's thousands of years old, you know, where he's trying to justify, you know, the terrible crime he's committing. Yeah, and it's just, <laughs> I don't like it, but no. this is a shining example of the things that evil men do to keep themselves in beer and Skittles. Okay. And like, even like the first line you have that he says after he rapes her, he says it occurred to him momentarily that the old man might have cheated him, given a real girl that he Rick Modic might possibly have done something wrong. Even criminal. You did something wrong criminal already, buddy. You kidnapped a person and raped them. Like you're already a criminal. You're already a piece of shit, buddy. But unfortunately, second, he sits down in the study the words just start pouring out. He writes for three hours and he has started the second novel. And Calliope is not pleased about this. And she prays. She prays to. Is this the, the three fates? Yeah, essentially. Because they're in the, the first arc, too, I think. Yeah, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Yeah. They show up in Doll's house. Yep. They show up in uh, Preludes and Nocturnes. Like, they're they're everywhere. It's a pretty... And, like, and they can't help her. They're like, we can't do anything for you. Like, we feel sorry for you, but we can't help you. And it's important to mention that Calliope has been around for a minute. Uh, <laughs> she was Homer's muse. Homer, he of the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer. So, she's she's been around for a while. So, she is beseeching the maiden, the mother, and the crone to help her, to get her out. And they just, they can't do anything. They talk about the gods that have died and other, and aspects of other gods have been lost forever. But the crone says only the endless will never die. And that's when they get an idea. And the the person that she, because she says, you know, bring someone to help me, anyone, she says, even... Oniros, is that Sandman then? Or Morpheus as we yeah. know him? Okay. So then the next panel it shows, I have questions for you on this panel, where it shows that she's in a pool taking a swim and this guy brings her a rose and has some kind of scroll that he then burns that makes her his. Doesn't his smile look like the Joker's smile? It does. And the way that his hair is falling, uh, uh, the particular suit, yes. Erasmus does look rather Joker-esque here. Which fits. And I mean, you have a terrible type, you know, terrible person that you're showing. What better way to show a terrible person than to draw him like the Joker? Exactly. I mean, it's DC, so but, hey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, technically, it could be canon. I mean, I could see it. Except Joker would just murder her, I feel. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right, and then you have like you have a scene where Madoc's like, "Oh, I just finished my novel," and and she even asks you, "Okay, will you let me go now?" And he's like, "You're my position until I tell you that you're free. Don't forget it. You're my personal muse, sweetheart." And then it's just so like he just becomes such. And then it shows like the years progress 
where he keeps writing books and he's famous and it just shows how all these people think he's so great and everything because of his talent and he's working on movies and like you know it, it's it's very interesting how you know you just you know you just see these different one panels each of the different years or different months of years as he's doing different things in his life yeah and he's he is very quickly climbing the ranks in less than 2 years he is making a movie based on his book. Like he is directing the movie from his book, <laughs> which is something that his old agent said, Nope, not going to happen. Well, yeah. And also as a guy who's watched movies, if you're a writer, you always, he doesn't make you a good director. <laughs> David Goyer, Blake Trinity. So, you know, but he's got the muse. So apparently it's happening. And this is where she finally talks to Sandman. He mentioned to her, that he, you know, he was in prison, but now he's free because, you know, he was locked up for all those years. And then you have Maddock talking to, he's on, he's on the radio, he's talking to it, you know, he's being interviewed for some show or something. And I think this is when, oh, they mentioned the other writer who, who gave him the muse who died because he poisoned himself. And he makes a mention about, oh yeah, we should, you know, publish one of his books. That was his only good one or something like that. And it's the same one that, because he had mentioned years ago when he gave him the muse, can you, you know, when you become famous, can you get one of my books republished? And he just ignored him. Yep. Erasmus Fry has passed. He died last summer while Richard was being super famous. <laughs> Apparently, he poisoned himself. Ha ha. Ha. That's because, funny. Because the base door protects him from poison, right? Yeah, supposedly. If it had any power. So he probably got screwed. It's probably a bad base door. <laughs> okay, I didn't catch that. And then you see him come home, and he gets all upset because Sandman is in his house. For more oh, yeah. I mean, I'd be upset if Morpheus was in my house, too. A guy in a black leather jacket with giant hair and pure white. Yeah, pale white. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, if there's a different guy in a black leather jacket and pale white that isn't me. Yeah, I'll be upset. <laughs> and I like what he does to him. Like, he, you know, he takes away Calope and he just says that you want ideas, you want dreams, you want stories and ideas. You will have ideas in abundance. And he can't stop thinking. He can't focus on anything and i think that's that is one hell of uh you know what he does to him he just keeps oh, having yeah. ideas but he can't do anything with the ideas and we glossed over a very important part of yes, this do. book feel free uh the the reason that morpheus helps calliope is that calliope is morpheus's son's mother oh i okay i don't you know i didn't i forgot he had a son yeah, read this. But... Son Orpheus of Greek legend. Oh, okay. Who went down into the depths of Tartarus and charmed even Hades with his musical skills. So, okay. Morpheus has a kid, at least a kid. Okay, I did not know that. I mean, I read this, but I guess it didn't. It didn't register. I read it a couple days ago. Okay, that's cool. And you know, that makes sense in why he does. Why he, you know, pretty much doesn't murder him, but he puts him in a situation where he's, I mean, almost worse than death. Like, you later on see how Maddock was trying to write, so he was writing on the walls with his with bloody hands, and his fingers are all broken. Yep, he ran out of paper. He just clawed everything out of the wall, and his fingertips have been worn down to bone, essentially. Yeah. And then he claws and his some face. some of these ideas are fucking great. <laughs> When he comes back, all right, this is when he finally lets her go then. Go, because he wouldn't let her go, but because of that deal or what Sandman did to him, then he lets him go. Then he lets her go. That's what happens, right? Yep. 
Okay, and I like how when he comes home, there's a one book laying there on the on the floor right by his door. It says, "Here comes a candle, the one by the guy that he took, you know, got the muse from." Yep. It's, and it's that was that was his doctor friend. Uh, his doctor friend is the one who went back, but okay. Morpheus has already spirited Calliope away. If you look at the cover of Here, Here Comes a Candle, uh, you'll see the in the plot description, she was his muse and the slave of his lust. Ah, hell. That's gross. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a fucked up... It's a fucked up issue. It's good, but it's a fucked up issue. And this is... Afterwards, you get a conversation between Calliope and Morpheus... And she tells Dream that he's changed. In the old days, you would have left me to rot forever without ever turning a hair. And, well, we know that Dream has done that before. <laughs> yes, we do. First arc that I completely yep. forgot about. Mm-hmm. The, the young African princess who still remains in hell. What was her name? Nala? Something like that? I can't remember. I just know that. She's in the first episode, or not first episode, she's in one of the episodes of the show, and then I remember, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think she, her story was in Dalsos. I can't remember. I think part of it. Go back. Go back and check it out. But uh, <laughs> I, she's still in hell. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's not a very nice guy. No, he's not. But he doesn't, I mean, this is his baby mama, so it's not <laughs> quite the same. Uh, and then this is when you then have Madak talking with the doctor, and he's like, I have no ideas. I have no idea anymore. No idea at all. He forget everything. They took it's all gone. So he can never write again. Yep. That's what he deserves. And you see Morpheus fading away and he had all these ideas and now he has nothing. And then that brings us to the second issue, a dream of a thousand cats. Oh, I like <laughs> this story. I do too. This is a really good one-off story that, I really like. I mean, and again, it's not entirely unrelated. It no, it's still related. Know, there are some central themes that you know make this story make sense in the larger narrative. And I feel like this is a spot-on take on cats too. Oh God, yes. <laughs> I have four in this house. Have, one I running one around near me at the moment. It's spot on. <laughs> okay, so, so it starts off. Where these these two got these this couple got a little white kitten and they put it to bed and it's it's adorable and then it escapes out of the house because one of the other one of the other cats tells it one of the outdoor cats or some let's guess another neighbor's cat tells it okay you know it's time for the meeting or something so it it jump it jumps out of the window into a tree and then it follows this other cat who meets up with other cats who meets up with other cats to all go see some other cat some old cat that's gonna talk and it is a gathering of a lot of cats in a graveyard. Uh, I so, mean, there's one panel or shit, probably a splash page of just, like you said, just a bunch of cats just sitting in a graveyard. And it looks really cool. If I ever go into a graveyard and I see a shit ton of cats, I am booking it out. <laughs> I've been in many graveyards at night, but I've never seen a, I've never seen cats in the graveyard. I've seen coyotes. Nope. Coyotes. <laughs> but, and then you see, then you see this old cat that comes to tell them a story. And to yep. share the dream that she had, or and it, it it's really cool. Like she just sitting on the top of the statue, talking about how she was, you know, a home cat, and then fell in love with some tomcat, and he got her pregnant. And again, more fucked up humans because it's Sandman for you. And you see, you see them taking the cat. You see one of the humans takes the kittens, puts it in a bag, and then throws the bag into a lake. 
and drowns all the kittens because they don't want kittens. Which is super unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it's it's people, so I'm, not, I'm sure it happens. I'm, I mean, I don't know how people can do it, but I'm sure it happens. Yeah. And the cat talks about how she could feel her children uh, calling for her, their panic and their fear, and then they were just gone. And she knew then that she had been fooling herself, that they were subordinate to the humans. You know, there it was not an equal exchange. The cats were still subjugated by humans. They weren't free. Yeah. As I tell my kids every day, when she tries to escape the house, and I won't let her. <laughs> and the cat prayed. The cat wanted justice. The cat prayed, and the cat dreamt. <laughs> and we all know what happens when you dream. <laughs> well, oh, there's also a really good line in here where they say, oh, I'm sure, you know, because the guy feels guilty for, or no, I think the woman feels guilty for what she, what they did. And he makes the sense like, oh, she's probably relieved. Like that, you know, the idea that, you know, animals don't care about their children. That's ridiculous. I just, mm, I can't even. They do. I mean, they just can't even with these fucking people. I mean, hey, this the one thing about Dream Countries, it's full of terrible people in some of these books. I mean, the first book, yeah. you have, you know, so some bad people. And then you like you said, she's she's dreaming, she's praying, and then she wakes up in some like graveyard and in then the boats. Yeah, it, it's pretty creepy. Remind me of Lion King though. But Yep. And then she yeah, just walks and walks in the dream world until she ends up to a cave with three oh, I didn't even catch this when I read this first. Uh, a manticore, or I think a manticore, a Pegasus and a dragon are all sitting guarded above this cave. That's cool. I think it's a griffin. I don't think. Maybe you're right. It's hard. I mean, yeah, the manacord has a lion's head. A yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's a griffin. It's a Pegasus, a griffin, and a dragon, and they're guarding a cave. Hey, a cave uh, that this cat was sent to by a bird made entirely of bones hey, to find said, revelation. Two out of three ain't bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh r.i.p meatloaf i had to make the joke so. oh it, it's pretty it's interesting like and he goes into the cave and then he and then the cat finds a giant i guess that's supposed to be a cat yeah that looks like a cat yep a cat. giant black cat and of course that is dream oh i did not catch that yep it's got the same style of like dialogue. the hair the eyes and the dialogue bubbles, same drippy black guy. Oh, dye. yep. Okay, you are 100% right. I did not. Okay, that made this a lot cooler. Thank you. <laughs> so Kat has met, got an audience directly with Dream, and Dream shows her a world of what it used to be, where cats were larger and humans cared for them. They would groom them and feed them, pet them, and cats were free, truly free to hunt. And hunted them. Yeah, yeah, you see a you whole know, lot. You know, I could completely hunting. see that. I mean, my cats love me and I love my cats, but I can completely see that, like, that kind of, that's an animal. that <laughs> would be like, the table's turn, like, all right. <laughs> but, of course, all good things must end. There was a, a man, a human man, who had a dream, an inspiration, and he said that dreams shape the world. Dream of a world where we'll no longer be hunted and killed by cats. So... They dreamt, the humans dreamt, and some believed and they dreamed, and for a while nothing happened. And then the next day, things changed. Humans were large again, cats were small, humans are the dominant species, and the cat is very concerned by this. And an 
asks Dream, you know, oh, what do, what do I do? And Dream tells her, you know, they dreamed the world so that it was always the way it is now. There never was a world of high cat ladies and cat lords. They changed the universe from the beginning of all things until the end of time. Which is woof. It's really cool. Yeah. It's also, oh, you made it a lot cooler now that I realize it's Dream that was talking to, to, to this cat. Which I thought was really cool. And I like it how the kitten then goes. Or no, it talks about how the cat had traveled across the across the world, been on boats, been in other cities, telling everyone all the cats to dream to help, you know, to make it happen. And I like how there's so the little kitten leaves when, you know, the meeting's all over. And one of the older cats says, She was amusing, I'll say that for her. No, it felt right, it felt like a truth or a truth anyway. Do you think it will happen? And the and then I like how the cat says, No, it will never happen. Because little one, I would like to see any anyone, prophet, king, or god, persuade a thousand cats to do anything at the same time. <laughs> and that is but, such a true statement. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love cats, but you can't make them do anything you want. <laughs> they do their own thing. <sighs> like, right now, my kitten is climbing on top of a bookshelf you're not supposed to be on. But I give I given up that fight a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so then we wake the next morning with the cute little white cat and her people. They're eating breakfast, and the cat is asleep. Mm-hmm. And they look over at their kitten, and, you know, oh, I think the kitty's dreaming. <laughs> and the husband, dreaming. Oh, I wonder what cats have to dream about. The way it's twitching about, I think maybe it's hunting something, some small animal, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's really cute. Uh, I love thinking about the fact that that's, it's hunting a human. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that. It just, I mean... It's just so great. It's such a good little thing where it doesn't say it, but because I thought it said mouse in this book, and then when I'm rereading it now, and it says some small animal, like you're like <laughs> it's humans. Mm-hmm. And I think this story really speaks well to one of the central things about the Sandman mythos: is sometimes a dream is all it takes to shape reality. Yeah. And you know, for thousands of other cats, you know, they don't all have this dream but this one cat does this one cat is dreaming of a world where it is powerful it is free and in a sense that makes that cat freer than every other cat it's just really cool i mean i'm also a cat lover so reading about killer cats i thought was very interesting it's it's a great story i really it love it and that's what's so like um, people have always talked about sandman and some of the podcasts listen to like comic conspiracy for example is a podcast listen to constantly he always goes on and on about Sandman from time to time. He is right now because the show's out. And, like, he had talked about, which I didn't really ever understand, this comment. He's like, you know, one of the great things about Sandman is all, like, the one-off stories that you have throughout the series. And I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. And now I'm starting to understand because I'm actually reading it for the first damn time. So, and this is yeah, one of those. And- this is one of those stories that just really works. Oh, it really does. And, you know, these are the one-off stories I think are sometimes better than the main narrative because you really get an idea of, you know, Dream not only interacting with the Endless or the certain people that he has chosen to interact with, but you just get Dream interacting with random, you know, people or animals, personalities, really. And they're just, you know, you see how he interacts and you can see the growth in him as a personality from the oh, yeah. beginning of the story to where we are now. Cause he's not, he's like, like we were watching, I was watching the show with my wife and I was telling him like, he's not a good person really at first. Like he put himself in these situations cause he made bad decisions too. Like he doesn't think 
highly of humans or really, but he changes as the show progresses. He really changes. I blame death. Me too. But I mean, like, even, I mean, the show and the comic, like, you know, he just, you can kind of, you can really see how he's evolving over time. Oh yes. Like that. Well, right. And this brings us to the third issue of this arc, which is midsummer. Yep. A midsummer night's dream. Um, <laughs> one of these stories that most Sandman people point to as one of the best standalones. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard a lot of people over the years, well, mainly podcasts, mainly comic conspiracy, talk about how Midsummer's Night Dream, how this is such a great one-off issue, and this is a great comic book, and I'm just like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Because <laughs> I've never read it so much. And then I finally read it, and I'm like, okay, this is actually, this is pretty good. So the essential setup for this one is you have a wagon train full of performers with costumes and they're on their way to a performance. And their their writer is a young man by the name of William Shakespeare, <laughs> who is traveling with his son, Hamnet. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm assuming so, that was the actual name of his son then in real life? I don't remember. Okay, I don't know anything about Shakespeare because I don't care. So I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't speak to it. So we see... The theater troops stop in the middle of a field, and Shakespeare goes and wanders off and meets somebody at the top of the hill. And who is it? <laughs> dream. Of fucking course it's Dream. <laughs> so we find out that Shakespeare has written a play at Dream's request. And he finds it odd that he's performing in the middle of a field, to which Dream said, Wendell's Mound was a theater before your race came to this island. <laughs> Shakespeare says, before the Normans? Dream replies, before the humans. <laughs> I love how old he is. Oh, yeah. And Dream is essentially just playing the part of the wealthy patron. You know, like, yes, I paid this, I like the arts, blah, 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 blah. And Dream has a very special audience coming to view the play tonight. So that's why they're setting up out in the field. Everybody's getting ready. In true Shakespearean fashion, you have men playing the parts of women. Which I like seeing that because it was a real, you know, women weren't allowed to act at this time. So men, young men, young boys or young men played women. Yeah, it's so dumb. It's stupid as hell. But it's a historical thing, so I think it's cool that it's there for history's sake. Yes, yes. I, I like agree. stuff like that. I like when things are true. Like, I mean, yes, Morpheus is not real, as far as we know. And, you know, this didn't happen, but I like the idea that they're incorporating things from reality and putting it in there. Makes me happy to see. And then uh, Shakespeare goes off and tells his wealthy patron, all right, we already are, is the audience on their way? To which Morpheus says, yeah, yeah, I'll go call him. You go make sure everybody's ready to begin. He calls out and there's a portal opened and through it walk the fucking fae <laughs> <laughs> all the hobgoblins and fairies of the world have come to watch a midsummer night's dream it's really cool like you see all the, the demon looking things and monsters and they're all just coming and they make comments about it, like the the actors are like uh what the hell is out there <laughs> Like, who the hell are we entertaining? Yep, and, you know, they're entertaining royalty. They're entertaining fae royalty. And, amusingly, they are all going to sit down to watch a play in which they all feature. This was essentially a play that 
Morpheus had commission, correct? Yes. Okay. Morpheus commissioned this play, and if you've ever read Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, it is very much a tale loaded with fairies, and everything that you see here, all of the words from the play are actually taken from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. That's cool. So the story just supposes, you know, well, what if the actual, you know, fairies that inspired the story actually got to watch the play? What would they think? Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, that I didn't know, because I've, I've read very little Shakespeare. I maybe had to read Romeo and Juliet or something when I was in school a very long time ago. But it, it was never part of English that I liked. I love English. I love writing and reading, but it wasn't, it was too, it was not my cup of tea. Oh, there's, there's some really good Shakespeare out there, man. Uh, listeners, if you want Mike to uh, read Shakespeare, uh, you can email at <laughs> gamesbymomfon at yahoo.com, but I can't even tell you the last time I opened it up, so I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> get a hold of me on Discord, get a hold of me on Patreon. Yep, we but do I... have a Discord, we have a uh, Patreon, we have a Twitter. Just get a Mike and say, hey Mike, I want you to cover more Shakespeare, and we'll yeah, do it. I would. That's the problem. <laughs> I don't see it happening, but I would, yes. <laughs> but it, okay, so, that makes it that makes this book even cooler now. That makes this a lot yeah. more interesting. Because I, I didn't catch I did catch that the people that they were talking about in the play were the were the people that were out there watching. I did catch that. I did not realize it was actually, you know, from the real play. Oh yeah. Very much so. So, so the actors see what's going on and they're trying not to shit their pants. <laughs> Which makes sense. I mean, you have a crowd full of, you know, fairy kings and queens. You have hobgoblins, trolls, all sorts of mythical creatures are sitting there watching your play. And you just got to be sitting there like, oh, don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> Doesn't someone get eaten, too, as it progresses? Well, I mean, not eaten but he necessarily, gets, but killed, right? Because one of the one of the actors oh, is or knocked the fuck out. Okay, because he's um, God, what is he again? He's supposed to be a hobgoblin or something. Yep. Okay, and then eventually, when the real hobgoblins pays attention to it, and then during one of like the acts where they're off, where he's off, he goes and imper- I think he he impersonates him. Yeah, like this is it's really fun to read because you see the people reacting to, oh, this dude's playing me. Well, that's not how I sound. <laughs> like it's it's funny. And constantly, the little hobgoblin is being told, hey, behave yourself. They're friends, not food. <laughs> but, you know, everybody seems to be really enjoying the play. And Robin Goodfellow is being played by a human. Robin Goodfellow is the hobgoblin. And he's not terribly pleased about the fact that, you know, somebody's playing him. Some mortal is trying to play him. And then you have also here, you have um, William Shakespeare's character mentions about Marlowe Will will be able to gainsay that. And this is when he tells him that Marlowe Will was killed or Marlowe was killed. Is that somebody from actual history? Do you know? Yep. yep. Okay. Um, There was actually a lot of thought that um, Marlowe and Shakespeare were the same person for a while. Ah, Jesus Christ. What was his name? Philip Marlowe? I do. This is beyond my. Ex- uh, Christopher. Christopher Marlowe. Okay. Philip Marlowe is something different. Kit Marlowe, also known as Christopher Marlowe. Elizabethan playwrights. He's, you know, way up there. 
like in fame. But he wrote his biggest thing is the uh, tragical history of Dr. Faustus. So he's basically the one who wrote the Faust. Like every time we talk about a Faustian deal, it's all Marlowe's fault. Oh, okay. And it's kind of funny because we come to find out that Shakespeare's entered into kind of a Faustian deal. (laughs) Okay. That is kind of cool. So we see Dream and Titania talking, and she is very interested in William Shakespeare's son. Very interesting. (laughs) Um, Apparently, Shakespeare and Dream came to an agreement uh, four years back. Dream would give him what he thinks he most desires, and in return, he would write two plays for me. This is the first of them. Okay. So, So does his son actually die, or did his son go to the other world and they said he died? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And is this reference again later in in the series? Gosh, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure this is, like, just a one-off, but it's been a while since I've gone through. I've been trying to not read ahead. Well, I know we cover these, I'll give us a reason bad. to cover these faster because I I think I just want to knock out all ten volumes. So, and like as as the play continues, there's a backstage time where one of the actors is saying, "You must be proud of your father, Hamnet." And Hamnet starts talking about how you know, well, he's really distant. He's not really there. He's just making stories out of thing. The best thing here is I. First time I read this, I cried laughing. Mother said he'd changed in the last five years, but I don't remember him any other way. Judith, she's my twin sister. She once joked that if I died, he'd just write a play about it. Hamnet. I see what you did. Yeah, I did laugh a little bit about that one, too. I was like, oh, okay. So Hamnet is not happy being where he is, and he's not proud of his father. He just wants his father to be a father. Which makes perfect sense. Yeah, and... All the while, the play's still going on. And Robin Goodfellow's just loving it. <laughs> and he says a line. It is magnificent, and it is true. It never happened, yet it is still true. What magic art is this thing? And that's a really cool line. Like, it never happened, but it's still true. And it's like, you know, when you get down to the nature of something so good that even though it doesn't happen, it feels like it should have, you know? Yeah, and that I, the the end of this Robin Goodfellow, he's the one that stays behind then, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. It looks yeah. like he doesn't leave with the, with the rest of them. So, yeah. We'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll cover that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, we get to, we get to the interval. There's a little intermission, so everybody can, you know, freshen up or stretch their legs, mm-hmm. use the bathroom. <laughs> it's a play. <laughs> yep, it's a play. And this is where King Oberon decides to go and talk to Shakespeare. And he's like, you know, I feel like I should be mad about this, but I'm not. <laughs> like, this is good stuff. I I really like this. And then you see Robin Goodfellow kind of talking to the person playing him. And it's like, oh, there's your lines, I see. And I don't think he <laughs> killed him. I think he just got knocked the fuck out. Yeah, I think you're right. As I'm looking at this now, I think you're right, yeah. Oberon decides to give the main actor a heavy sack of gold. <laughs> and this is one of the most, like, the picture is just a close-up of Oberon's face, and he says, gold. You ask Oberon of the Fae for gold. Well, then you must have your gold actor. And anybody who knows anything about the Fae 
knows you don't do something that stupid. Because <laughs> I for I don't remember the Fae. I mean, I know of them, but I can't think of like what you're not supposed to ask the Fae for anything, correct, or something like that. Well, you're not supposed to take anything a Fae offers you. Okay. Especially not fucking food like Hamnet does on the next page. Takes an apple from Titania. Okay, I didn't that's catch that. His fate. Yeah, it's very much background. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, you don't fuck with the Fae. The Fae, they are malicious compliance embodied. They'll give you what you ask for, but in the shittiest possible way. Okay, that's cool. And then the play just keeps so, going. I don't even know what yeah. the hell is happening exactly, but you have the second act where some guy wearing a horse's head for some reason. Yep, and it all makes sense. I know it's not stupid, but it makes sense if you read the play. And the best part is, this is where you have Robin Goodfellow playing himself in the play. Yeah, I, I did like that. Like, that. It's, it's great. He's just having a ball playing himself. And you also find out that Oberon and Titania are not coming back to Earth. Things have changed, and they don't feel welcome anymore. But uh, Dream is very much welcomed in the realm of the Fae. Okay. And we see Ham or Shakespeare kind of muttering to himself, like, oh, you know, Dick Cowley's acting real well tonight. I've never seen him feign a finer puck. He seems almost two-thirds <laughs> hobgoblin. <laughs> and he's essentially ignoring Hamnet. And Hamnet's like, man, there was this pretty lady, and she said nice things to me, and she gave me an apple. And basically all it's, it's laid out. Hamnet is just gone. Okay, he disappears with them in this? No, no, he dies later. But Okay, because uh, okay, then, yeah, they mentioned that he died at... Oh, I see. Okay, so then you have the thing where you have Goodfellow doesn't... doesn't They all go back in the portal, Goodfellow stays, and then you have them waking up the next morning, and they find out that the bag he took was nothing but flowers. Yep, and that's why we don't fuck with the Fae. But there's a wonderful bit here about Dream. Dream knows what's going on. He knows that Hamlet's not going to be here long. And he wonders if he's done right, because Willow's a willing vehicle for the great stories, and his words will echo down through time. That's what he wanted, but he doesn't understand the price. Mortals never do. They only see the prize, but the price of getting what you want is getting what you once wanted. And Dream didn't tell him. Like, he didn't really, didn't really explain it to him, and he's having a crisis of guilt here. And he asked Titania if he did right. And Titania's just like, oh, yes, it's a wonderful play. Very nice. <laughs> like, she wasn't even listening. And then you have the last thing where they're they're leaving. It, you, where, like I said, where he has the flowers, it looks like Shakespeare did have the gold, though. Or no, they didn't get any gold. He said, no, for we were paid full well. Which other troupe has played to such an audience? That's what it was. Okay. It, exactly. The honor of yeah. playing for, for the creatures that tales are made from. I mean, that's woof exceptional uh, and then you have him leave then you have like a little this little just little block of texas is hamlet shakespeare or hamnet shakespeare died in 1596 age 11 robin goodfellow's present whereabouts are unknown so yep still a hobgoblin hanging about which i'm assuming might be referenced later in this series but we'll find out <laughs> i have no fucking but, idea but that's the story and it is a great story it's absolutely beloved and you start to see here, even back in the 1500s, that Dream's stoic facade is starting to crack. Like, he's he's not the person that he used to be. And you can see it even back then with the guilt that he feels about 
his deal with Shakespeare. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. With Very that. good. And then you bring to the last. This is my favorite issue of this art of this little book that we read. Uh, the last issue, facade. Now this, I had no idea what to expect. I've heard, I've heard about the story, but like, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. It starts off, you have somebody randomly talking who's smoking, and I'm not a smoker, but I thought of you immediately, Kenneth. Where she's like, "They say that cigarettes will kill you eventually. Fine, that's just fine." You know, and she's just smoking away. I just wish it would do it sooner. Mm-hmm. I draw the smoke into my lungs, extract the nicotine and the tar. It doesn't do anything for me, but I like the smoke. I like the ash, the way it falls. I like breathing out the smoke. I'm not a smoker, but I used to live a smoker. So, like, I completely understand all that. Like, I understand, like, how smoking, what the addiction smoking is. Yep. And just even reading this, I'm just like, shit, man, I want a cigarette now. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just so poetic the way it's written. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't, like, understand this because, like, the last thing she says is I smoke a cigarette and pretend I'm normal and wish I was dead. And then it shows her calling somebody and they do a good job of not really letting you see the character that is that you're reading about. Like you, you barely see her face. You barely see any of her skin, You but you see mass all over the room on the walls and stuff. Just white mat, mm-hmm. which is creepy as hell. <laughs> and she's calling about a check. Yeah, she's waiting for money. And then as the panels increase, you get more color. And then I could finally start to see and I'm like, wait a second. One of her hands is purple. One of her hands is orange. Her face is white. I'm like, wait a second. Because I, I know some of DC lore and DC comics because cartoons and everything else. Like, I know this is a character which is connected to the Metamorphal, which is a, another, which is the Rex, I think she mentions in this comic randomly later on. Yeah. This is the female counterpart of Metamorphal. Element Girl. Okay. Yep. Okay. So and this, okay. this is basically Gaiman doing the same thing it did with Sandman. He's taking a neglected DC character and revitalizing it, making it, you know, telling his side of what they're going through. He does a good job with it. Like, it, like I didn't even realize that this was a female character at first. It took a little bit before I realized that. But, like, you see where she sees an old picture of herself and then talks about how nobody will talk to her and the company. The company is all I've got. And she always calls it just a company. Yep. And then you, you have her get a phone call, which is, I guess, an old friend of hers or something that wants to see her for lunch, let's say. Yep. And I think that's really cool. Like, the way that they draw the panels, the way that they draw this character is... V- and then every panel always has mass all over the place in different areas in the apartment or the house, wherever she's in. I, I like that a lot. And I didn't really understand what was going on. Like, it it, it, show- it like has, like, a flashback thing where she's dreaming. Where I think she's dreaming where she's in a pyramid. She looks, you know, human. And then she ends up seeing the god of Ra, and he, like, transforms her into Metamorpho. Yes, and that's essentially how Element Girl and Metamorpho got their powers. Oh, was Ra? They, yeah. Okay. It was, you know, Ra. I mean, it's not quite Moon Knight, but, you know, that's basically their interaction with the god Ra is what caused this to happen. And very much like the Red Skull, what's, what was going to happen Ain't exactly what ended up happening. Okay. Like, there's there's been a price to pay. She's not herself anymore. Uh, her face has been changed forever. And, yes, she has these, you know, crazy powers, but at what cost? Yeah. I mean, you, you have a few panels later on where you see how she can change her face. And she looks like how she used to look. And she changes her hair or something, too. Mm-hmm. It's really cool, like the way they describe it, and then she covers up everything, puts on gloves, 
so the only thing that you see is her face cause, and her hair because everything else is changed in the metamorpho. And the way she does it is, you know, she turns her hair into very finely spun metal. Her face is basically a silicate replica, but the problem is those faces dry up and <laughs> they fall into lunch. <laughs> I mean, there's some good stuff with this comic, too. Like, she goes to lunch with this woman who was her friend, who I think is, like, only pretty much just trying to gossip with her or something. Yep, just trying to gossip, make good conversation. And she has to tell somebody, and that she's... Pregnant. Oh, she is pregnant. It's with a married man who, <laughs> you know, works in the company, and he's going to get a divorce. Of yeah, sure, honey. Yeah, they all. They, but it, it always say that, like when the woman that you're dating gets married after you start dating her and tells you, "I'm going to divorce him," you go, "Yeah, yeah." You, you go, "No, you idiot." You walk away. Yeah, you don't walk away. Yeah, you don't yeah. keep walking down that trail for another year. No, I'm not speaking from experience. No, not at all. <laughs> That doesn't remind me immediately when I was like, hmm, that doesn't work that way. Like, there's a really uncomfortable moment in this lunch, though, when her friend starts saying, you know, I'm 36, this is my first baby. What if it's like them? And she points out the window, and you see some kids with handicaps, you know, one's in a wheelchair with no legs, one doesn't have an arm. Like, they're just... It bothered me, because I get it. Like, I mean, there are people out there that are that callous and, you know... I like that. Like, I completely get it. And the reason it was so, like, the first time I read this, I was just like, oh, this sucks. This sucks because Rainey's just been talking about how much she's a freak. Mm-hmm. And to hear her friend talk about, you know, handi- handicapped children that can go out and live a life as freaks. Well, then what must your friend think of her? Yeah. And then right after she says that, you have her face falls off into the spaghetti. And you see the spaghetti sauce just splash. Like, you have two panels. One with the mask falling in the spaghetti, the woman screaming, and the spaghetti sauce like looks like blood splashing on her. And the other panel is the mask in the spaghetti sauce with spaghetti sauce on Mephesto, or whatever the hell her name is. So, it's a really good little panel. Yep. And, and like, her friend just, like, covers... Yeah, just, it's a skin disease. And mm-hmm. Rainy is just mortified. It's good. And she goes home and she tries to call the company again, which you see her call earlier in the book. But this time, the guy Mulligan isn't there anymore for some reason. Yeah. But in- the cool thing is that she she leaves her keys in her purse and the purse is at the restaurant. So she essentially has to turn the doorknob to magnesium and blow open the door. Oh, that's what that was. I see. OK, I did not. I read this last night when I was exhausted. I did not catch that. Yeah. And that's- she changes out of her clothes by turning into pure nitrogen. This is when I recognized her, finally. <laughs> this yeah, this is, this is the best shot you get. Green hair, one white leg, one brown leg, one purple arm, orange arm. I'm like, I know who this is now. And this, is, this has got to be a horrible life. And this is where she decides to kill herself. And she doesn't know how to do it. And she talks and... about taking her life. Like, I could do this, yeah. but this wouldn't work. I could do this. And at the same time, you have this woman that just walks into her apartment and sits on the bed next to her. And it was like, hey, door was open. I heard you crying. Thought you might need somebody to talk to. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's death, baby. I really like death in this a lot. I love death in everything death has been in. Like, She's really good in the show, too. So. Oh, my God. So good in the show. <laughs> like So cheerful and just matter of fact about things. Mm-hmm. 
But this is where Rainy starts talking about, you know, it's not an ashtray. These masks are on my faces. They just dry up and fall off, but she can't throw them away because she feels like they're a part of her. But it's, and this is when she, yeah, this is when she talks about how to kill herself. And then this is when death tells her how, you know, how she could, or that's something about raw. And then if she looks at raw, she could, that's how people like her have have died before. Yeah. I mean, there was one Roman centurion who went into a volcano. He was only 2000 years old when he died. I like how they put only in there though. Cause she, you know, to her, that's nothing. So what, so as you have this issue read and as they have their conversation and Des talks about some things that I really like how she says like, no, I didn't come for you, Rainy. There was a woman upstairs changing the light bulb in her kid's room. The stepladder slipped. Like I said, I was passing and I heard you crying. And well, the door was open. Like, I really like this. And like another line, listen, is, as, as, as we're talking, I'm there for old and young, innocent and guilty. Those who die together and those who die alone. I'm in cars and boats and planes and hospitals and forests and abattoirs. For some folks, death is a release. And for others, death is an abomination, a terrible thing. But in the end, I'm there for all of them. And I just love this. It's so good because you get death's basic treatise and you also get one of the biggest, like most famous lines from this entire comic book series. When death is saying, when the first living thing existed, I was there waiting. When the last living thing dies, my job will be finished. I'll put the chairs on the tables, turn up the lights, and lock the universe behind me when I leave. It's so good. And it's also in the show. <laughs> a different part than this, but it's in the show, too. <laughs> so I was glad to see that it was, when I read it, I was like, ah! Unfortunately, I watched the show first, and I read the line. I was like, oh, okay. But it's, it's really good. And Rainy just it wants nothing more than death's help to die. And... She says, so that's what I have to look forward to. Another 2,000 years of being a freak, 2,000 years of hell. Death says, well, you make your own hell, Rainy. It's quiet for a panel. Okay, fine. I'll help. <laughs> so does she, so she looks at, she talks to Ra, which is the sun god, the sun. And then she like burns, she turns him like ash, I guess. There is a school of thought on this because this is my one brush with greatness that I've had. I actually read this first, you know, we, we read this in a class that I covered in college. We, it was an epic cl- a class called Epic and Mythology, and we covered the first three volumes of Sandman. And I was very happy that I took this class because in class I spoke up and I was like, man, that sure does kind of look like salt, doesn't it? <laughs> and everybody was like, so who cares? And I was like, but don't you get the symbolism? Because, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah were burned by things coming from the sky. You know, the sun falling and Lot's wife looked back and Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. So it's kind of biblical here. And everybody's like, well, I don't know. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to fucking ask Neil Gaiman then. And I tweeted him and I was like, hey, man, this rainy turned into salt. And he was like, I don't know, I always thought it was dust, but, you know, the coloration, yeah, that could be salt. That's cool. So, like, the one time he's actually responded to me, uh, he was just to clear that up. (laughs) He does respond on Twitter to people, I've seen that. Yep. But he responded to me! (laughs) That is cool. Okay, and then that's the the end, and then uh, she gets a phone call, Metamorpho does, this time, and it's Mulligan calling her back, and then I like how she's like, oh, she's gone away, I'm afraid. And she's like, no, Mr. Mulligan, I really can't get a message to her. I'm sorry. Who am I? Just a friend, sometimes. Maybe. Sorry, I couldn't help any. Be seeing you. 
And I just love that. Like, oh, you know what's coming for him at some point. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the story and the end of this volume. I was really surprised. Well, I'm so, like, I had no anticipation, no, nothing, no thoughts. Like, I wasn't really, like, we read Dollhouse a year ago. This surprised me, I how much I liked it. So, I just want to put that out there. And we should go to Shelf Stacker Box. And I'll go first. I'm already talking. Uh, this is going on the shelf. I really liked the story. I was surprised how different it was. I really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to read more. So, there's a good chance that Season of the Mist will be coming sooner than later. <laughs> sooner than a year. I want to say that. Let's I might, make that happen. I'm going to. I think I'm just, I mean, hell, me and you could easily just get some video people together, knock out all 10 and be done with it and then just release it as I feel like it. Yep. So, I'd be down. It's probably going to happen because this was really damn good and I need more in my life. So, all right, going on the shelf. Uh, what about you, Ken? Oh, it's absolutely on the shelf. I mean, I wasn't on that first episode where you covered the first volume, but that would have been on the no. shelf for me. It was. Before. I was on for Doll's House. I put that on the shelf. This one's going on the shelf. I just, I really, really like the Sandman. I like the world. I like the symbolism, the messages, the ties to his history and, you know, all sorts of other disciplines, you know, the arts, science. This is an all encompassing series. Like it, it touches everything. And most importantly, it touches your heart. Aw. So yes, really absolutely on I mean, the shelf for me. It was really good. It was. I was surprised to find out that I really like an anthology type book because that's not normally my thing. So I was impressed. Okay, and I think that's all right. And if you enjoyed this episode, as I said, go check out the other two Sandman episodes. I did not want to look them up. I'm not. But yeah, we did Sandman Preludes and Nocturnes and Dollhouse. Go check those out. They're in the comic section of our show. If you can't find what episode you're looking for, you probably have to go to Podbean or Podcast Addict or one of the other podcasters that pulls everything because Spotify, iTunes doesn't appreciate when you publish as much as I do. It just doesn't like it. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Not you just I'm a podcast. Google Podcasts only has the uh, hundred, yeah, the last hundred episodes. Spotify is the same. So is iTunes. So are all of them. Like iTunes stuff like that. So that's why I always try to tell people like you can find our whole damn because we have a whole fucking huge ass catalog. So. Go check that out. And if you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on YouTube. Audio only, but we're on YouTube. Also, if you want to support the show, we do have a Patreon. You can, we, little as a dollar, you can vote in our Patreon polls. Each month we have different polls. I do not know what the poll will be when this goes up in October, so I can't tell you. But there will be a poll. So little as a dollar, you can go vote in the poll. Also, we have a Discord. You can join our Discord, talk with us, chat with us. You'll see a link in the show notes. And why don't you stop my awesome intro and outro courtesy of Helena at Hell Has Fury. You can follow her on TikTok. She made our music. And also want to give a shout out to my awesome uh, buddy Bill Tucker to the MCU MCU with me. He started his own podcast, The Gamer Looks at 40. He's on the show still still quite often. Go check out his podcast, A Gamer Looks at 40, where he interviews people. And I think that's everything I need to say. So we will see you guys all next time. Bye, everybody. So long, everyone. See you in your dreams. Ha, <laughs>